There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream or two. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll beginning, be beginning a, a special little side series, not based on the Library of America publications, but instead based on Stephen King's It. Um, I've sometimes thought about doing a Stephen King series, but there's like a million of them. Podcast out there looking at the work of Stephen King. Um, maybe I'll do it someday. I don't know, but I have, I guess, bigger fish to fry. Um, but this is a book that I love. It's a book I've often thought about talking about. It's um, um, and it's something I think I would enjoy doing. So what we're looking at here is like a ten or maybe an eleven part series looking at at it. Um, uh, I get 11 episodes out of the current edition I have, which is like a, a Scribner paperback version. Uh, it's got a horribly warped spine, uh, not because the book's been overly read. I often like audiobook this one, um, but it's, you know, it's just so thick that the, the, the paperback binding I have doesn't really hold up very well. I've been hoping to get a uh, hardback version of it someday uh, maybe I still will but anyways that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to uh, jump in pretty shortly and give you my thoughts on it um, I think it's a fun novel I think it's a brilliant novel I think it's really not only his greatest work it's it's one of the great works of the 20th century and I think it will be remembered that way uh, in the future so we start with uh Part one, The Shadow Before, we won't get through it until the next episode. Um, the book itself is broken up into five parts with interludes in between. Uh, and the interludes are some of my funnest, I think are some of the funnest, most interesting parts of the whole book, which dig into the history of, of Derry, which is the fictional town where, where it is set. Um, and we'll talk a lot about those when those come up, of course. Um, but there's five parts um, that have this back and forth narrative. If you've ever read this book, you know that it flips back and forth between our main characters as adults and our main characters as as children. Um, either a little bit or a lot. Like part five is is sometimes page by page is flipping back and forth where we're seeing like two timelines converge into one. And that's a lot of fun. Um, but. But yeah, that's that's the structure. Um, but part one's called The Shadow Before, which deals with the preliminary uh, events uh, before two cycles of its uh, kind of feeding cycle, I, I suppose is what that is. And what it is, what, uh, what it's supposed to represent is stuff we'll, we'll talk about as the series goes on. I'm doing it in my... 100 pages at a time approach just because I think it is worthy of of a of a of a, of a very very deep dive. So, we begin with a wonderful um, actually my my favorite of Stephen King's 
acknowledgement pages, or I guess it's the dedication. I mean, not the acknowledgements, the dedication page where he focuses on his children, right? Um, and that's something we're going to get to right away is this question of the importance of children. Now, the message of this dedication focusing on children and his own children uh, is it reminds me actually kind of, of of Mark Twain's introduction to uh, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, if you read it, where it's discussion of it's kind of a reminder. Remember, that book was published in the 100th anniversary of the American Revolution, and it's a reminder of how to be free. It's uh, saying essentially... Um, you adults who are reading this book have forgotten what it means to be free and to look to where that freedom is. You, you have to look to the children. And you have the same thing here said a little bit more directly. Quote, quick kids, fiction is the truth inside the lie and the truth of this fiction is simple enough. The magic exists. Um, of course, his audience for this book aren't young children, although they certainly could read it. I read it originally when I was 14 or 15, maybe even younger. But the... You know, the fact that most of his readers would have been adults uh, when it first came out suggests he's talking to the child part of us as adults. And that's certainly a theme of the uh, of the book. Then he has three three little epigraphs. Um, they're poetic and musical roots. One is Michael Stanley Band talking about uh memory in the old town, the town we grew up in. Quote, this old town's been home long as I remember. This town's going to be here long after I'm gone. East side, west side, take a close look around her. You've been down here, but you're still in my bones. Um, it kind of helps set the setting for what we're talking about is memory of, of the town we grew up in. And remember, Derry is, it's really a small city, right? It's not a small town. It's not a castle rock. It's not like some of the other locations in King's Fiction, which are often quite small towns, like Jerusalem's Lot or, of course, Castle Rock or Haven or these places. This is actually one of the larger settings he puts his books in, not counting like New York City. The Dark Tower spends a lot of time in New York City. But this is set in a, in a small town, kind of, of course, Bangor is the model for it. Um, then we have George Seferis with a poem talking about foreign skies far away from our own land, years abroad, which is, of course, what our characters do. They leave Derry, um, forget about it, and then have to come back. Uh, and then we have Neil Young, Out of the Blue and Into the Black, which is quoted several times in the early chapters of the books as different characters actually reflect on this, this line of music. Um, then we jump into part one, and we add a, yet another set of epigraphs. So he's kind of laying on a lot of introductory material before we even get into the book. Um, and first, it's a passage from William, William Carlos Williams Patterson. Now, I've, I haven't read this. Uh, interestingly, it was completed. The final volume of that was completed in 1958, which is, of course, when much of the book is set, which is the summer of, of 1958. Um, which, of course, connects to King's own life and his own. If you add up when he was born and connected, he's similar age of the kids in 19, uh, the kids in the story in 1958. Um, and I don't know. I've never read Patterson. You know, this is a good podcast for me to do that someday. I know William Carlos Williams has a volume in the Library of America. So someday I may get to that if I ever to, want to take on the poetry aspect of that series. Um, but, of course, that's often that's been described as like, the Ulysses of America, uh, a literary literary exploration of of 
the American spirit or American identity, looking at, again, small cities, small towns. So many Americans live in small towns and small, like, I don't want to say small towns, small cities like Derry. Um, it's the kind of place actually I grew up in. Um, Rothschild was 5,000 people, but nearby was Wausau, which is about the size of Derry, which isn't a small town where everyone knows each other. It's actually a uh, a legitimate city and many Americans live in those those small cities. I spent much of my life in America in cities like that uh, or, you know, things that aren't quite the big city yet, but are, you know, small enough that they're walkable, small enough that they, they have kind of a singular identity, um, which places like New York or L.A. don't quite have. Um, so I don't know. Patterson is something to think about. He cites it several times over the course of this book. Um, Obviously, it's something he read uh, when he was young. Then we have burned, uh, Born Down in a Dead Man's Town by Bruce Springsteen, that line. So he's mixing up poetry and rock and roll music from, from the 80s and 70s in these epigraphs. And that's just, of course, another comment. That's another kind of metaphor for dairy as a dead man's town. So we got memory, uh, a dead town, uh, a dying town. We got America. We have magic of childhood. We have people leaving their homes. We have so much stuff packed into these epigraphs. And I haven't even gotten to the start of the book yet. So anyways, our first chapter is, is After the Flood, 1957, which of course uh, is the record of the first murder in this cycle. If I think everyone knows the basic plot of it by now is that it's a cosmic being if you want to connect to the Dark Tower, maybe it's a creature of Todash space uh, that dwells in Derry and has dwelled in Derry for maybe millions of years uh, uh, and is and preys on the people that, that live there. And it's become, it is the town, essentially. Which I always found a bit odd how King revisits Derry because there's so much emphasis on Derry being it and it being Derry. It's hard, and in fact, at the end of the book, he has to destroy Derry, right, for that to make sense but then you have characters who continue to live there like insomnia set in dairy uh dream catcher a little bit of set in dairy there are other stories in which dairy pops up um i think he likes just like the setting and he did the work on that setting but but part of me would kind of wish he just left dairy after this and not try to revisit it but that's okay um but this is you got this cycle right of every 27 28 years this entity it returns i'm not going to call it pennywise pennywise is just an avatar just a manifestation of it just one of many and one that doesn't actually appear that much in the novel it it becomes it's in the film so like if you watch the film versions of it which none of them are very good it is you know it is pennywise and even king talks about pennywise when he really means it sometimes in his tweets and stuff and it annoys me because he of all people should know better it is an entity that just takes on a clown as just one of its avatars because it, it preys on children. Um, I do think the newer movie does a better job of representing what that ava particular avatar should look like, but I still don't like the overall way they approach it. Um, but anyways, so you get these cycles, and this is like the beginning of that cycle of, of this entity feeding on on children it can feed on adults too but children are its its primary interest as we see later in the story um so the opening line is wonderful the terror 
which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did end, began, so far as I know or can tell, with a boat made of a sheet of newspaper floating down a gutter, swollen with rain. So we have here a, a narrator who is partially omniscient. He seems to have some limits in his knowledge. Um, his, the, none of the characters are the narrator, but he, the, the narrators seem to know a lot, but he has limits to his knowledge, as suggested here. And we just see the this famous scene of this boy in the yellow slicker running through the rainy streets of Derry. And we're getting the geography of Derry, right? Witcham Street, Witcham and Jackson. These Again, it's a, it's a small city, but it's small enough that these places have meaning. They're not just numbered streets. They're, they're tied to places and homes and where people live. And, and they, they have their own histories. And I think King amazingly documents the geography of of this city better than maybe in any other uh, location. So he also sets up a lot of what he does throughout the book, which is set something at one point of time and then flashback to fill in some of the backstory. Um, and then one reason I'm interested in this book and talking about it is I think Noah book does a better job of really talking about King's vision of history. Um, which is something I've always wanted to explore a little bit more, but never had the time um, and energy to really do it. But that is like looking at his vision of history versus someone like Lovecraft's vision of history, which is very um, like Lovecraft has a very anxious view about history. Like it's something that should be hidden, something that should be silenced. I talked about this ad nauseum in my series on Lovecraft. But King has this idea that history is something that's got to be remembered and explored and grappled with. Um, so he's always stepping one foot back. So in almost every chapter, it's something he does is where he has a setting, then he flips back. Maybe he flips, like in this case, he just flips back an hour or so, but sometimes he'll flip back years um, or months. Um, a good example of this is the first deep look at uh, the summer of 1958, which is the first chapter in part two about Ben Hanscom in the library and being pl plagued by bullies. And then, and then it's like the story of his encounter with it is actually set that previous winter, um, which, you know, after the flood, after this death of, of George Dembro, but it's, it's months ab, um, before the events of that summer. And so it's a flashback within a flashback, right? And he does that. I think in almost every chapter, there's some kind of temporal games being played because again, this is a book all about memory and the relationship between our pasts, our, uh, the places we live past, and our current lives. And this actually is one reason the book is so long. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be this long to tell the story, but it has to be that long to tell the history of the characters, both their histories as adults and their histories as children, the history of the city, the history of it, um, and the history of like even scenes. Like in this first one, it's just we're literally just going back an hour. So we see uh, Georgie Dembro following the boat in the watery streets of Derry. And then we flip back to the, the construction of the boat, right? And this memorable scene of, of him in the home with his mom playing for Elisa on the piano while, while Bill Dembro makes this paper boat for his younger brother. Another theme we're talking, we're, we're, we're introduced to in this opening chapter is the theme of of the ch children's relationship to the supernatural 
and how it's different than adults, right? That's a big theme, how adult worries are things like the mortgage, a loan, uh, are we going to be fired, my relationship with my boss, did I offend someone, an old friend, those kinds of mundane worries. But the worries of, of Georgie Dembro are the monster living in the basement, the amorphous monster, the it, right? That doesn't have to really be defined. And I think that's, a, of course, a lot of what he's doing is, you know, previously in King's career, he was looking at all these specific monsters, vampires or werewolves or whatever. And here he just kind of says, that's just one thing. It's, it's it, whatever you want to define it as. And he's sent down by his brother to get the sealant for the paper boat and while down there he as a you know as this what is he six or seven he's really young right uh experiencing just the dark of the basement and the terror that he feels there um there was of course one shout out in this scene to the turtle where he actually looks at this turtle wax can for a while that of course has relationships to the dark tower and the book itself the turtle being another sort of cosmic entity that seems to have some role in the events of the novel, but but it's not clear how much, how active this turtle is in this confrontation with it. But it's it's hiding back there. But it's in this scene we also get the first use of the term, uh, you know, it as a as a proper pronoun, a capitalized pronoun. Quote: um, There was no things with claws, all hairy and full of killing. Every now and then someone went crazy and killed a lot of people. Sometimes Chuck Huntley told about such things on the evening news. And of course there were commies, but there was no weirdo monster living down in the cellar. Still, the idea lingered in those indeterminable moments while he was groping for the switch with his right hand. The left hand curled against around the door jamb in the death grip. That cellar smell began seemed to intensify until it filled with filled the world. Smells of dirt and wet and long gone vegetables would merge into one unmistakable, ineluctable smell. The smell of a monster, the apotheosis of all monsters. It was the smell of something for which he had no name, the smell of it, crouched and lurking and ready to spring. A creature that would eat anything, but which was especially hungry for boy meat. End quote. Um, now, of course, this language is not that of a young boy. This language is that of our narrator, who is somehow, you know, able to describe Georgie's fear in adult language. Of course, if you were to write this fully from his point of view, you would not use this language, right? You would use much simpler language, which he already does with that last sentence. It's kind of a much more visceral, boyish, young person's interpretation of everything that came before it, right? So even in this paragraph, we have a flipping between an adult and a child's point of view. When he returns with the the, the sealant wax stuff, the paraffin or whatever, he uh, we got the last moment between George and Bill Denbro, um, of course, stutter, stuttering Bill, as he's known by his peers. Uh, and it's a rather light moment where they kind of joke with each other and tease each other as boys will, using a little vulgar language that I'm sure their parents would not have approved of. But it's a nice final moment for the two together. And then we're told by the narrator, Bill would never see him again. And then we get the experience of George, we, we return back to the scene on the first page of the text, which is him following the boat. And then it goes down in the sewer and you know what happens, right? He goes down there and he sees this, this clown in the sewer with silver eyes. 
it's kind of an indefinite clown. Like what it actually looks like is, I think it's never f- described fully. King does leave a bit of that to our imagination. He does say maybe it looks like this popular culture clown or this popular culture clown or had Georgie live longer. He might have described it this other popular culture clown, but it's kind of its own thing. Um, it's, um, but it's some of its distinctive features are the silver eyes, of course. It's certainly outerworldly, um, but a boy wouldn't have a full understanding of, of this. Um, whether an adult could actually have experienced it this way, right? One thing that's never fully, he does, it does tell us in the novel at some point that it will consume um, adults if it has to, right? And it does often. Adrian Mellon, uh, who dies in the second chapter, is an adult, but he's also presented as, as naive. I don't want to say childlike, um, but he's presented as a little naive and a little, I guess, a little bit childish. I'll say it that way. So he's like a, a, a little too young at heart, right? But um, we do know that it consumes adults from time to time. But how does it manifest towards them? We don't get, um, maybe we get some hints at that, right? But it, it can't manifest as a, as a mortgage payment. It can't manifest quite as a as an adult concern, adult an adult fear. We get this wonderful back and forth between it and Georgie, where he's basically trying to seduce him. Uh, he thought his eyes were yellow and sees that they're silver. It, it flips. Uh, and the whole thing is very bizarre. And I, I actually, as much as I criticize the new adaptations for ways you'll, I'll, I'll mention it when I'm, as I go through these series, what I don't like about that, that series, but... One thing I think it did well is that opening scene, that that scene with Georgie and it in the sewer. It's it's almost word for word from the book too, and it's it's that's actually wonderfully done. Uh, that's what made me so optimistic about the film when I first saw that like little scene leaked. I'm like, wow, this could be a great movie. Fortunately, it wasn't. But, um, but again, it's a it's a weird conversation that. I think a child wouldn't fully understand how bizarre it is, right? It only works for someone who's who's quite young, right? So then we see the, then we, we witness the death of, of George Denbro, right? Tearing off his arm, leaving him for dead. Now, it's important that the person who sees him is this guy, David Gardner, because it comes up later in the next chapter. Um, um, and we're also, suge- something suggested that there's something really wrong, wrong with this town. And something I'm going to get into more in the next chapter where it's really made clear to us that this town is is sick. There's really something horribly bizarre about it. Um, but kind of the like the bit of the indifference, the whitewashing about what happened, the matter of fact way the town deals with ch- child murders, and it's something that our our secondary narrator um, Mike Hanlon, the librarian does in the interlude chapters also talks about the you know just how horrible this town is and how no one really wants to talk about it or address it that's part of what it is up to i suppose um the way it's described here is uh somewhere below in the stone dream that was already filled nearly to capacity with runoff george's newspaper oh this is the uh 
Oh yeah, here, and it's actually in the parentheses. He puts this in the parentheses. There could have been no one down there, the country sheriff would later exclaim to the daring news reporter with a frustrated fury so great it was almost agony. Hercules himself would have been swept away in that driving current. It's just that there, there's like a lack of effort to explain these murders is what the hint that. Uh, but it comes up again later on in the book where you see that there is uh, a deeper issue with dairy it's not just dairy is possessed or haunted or it's not just the layer of it it is they are one and the same and it's because the one was first right it it was there first and that's just take take what you what do you mind you want to take it take what you want from that make it a metaphor for america you know america was evil from the get-go you can do that i don't think that's quite king's point uh i think he does talk he's really talking more about memory and terror and how we experience things and how we interact with childhood trauma. I think that's more he's about, but we can, he also doesn't ignore the history. So he's certainly aware of our historical crimes and how we forget them or how we don't address them. Um, and, you know, even though I don't think that's the clearest thesis he's making, it's not very far under the surface. It's certainly on his mind. All right, so next we have After the Festival, 1984. So we jump ahead to the next cycle, the beginning of the next cycle, and this is the, the scene uh, where we see the murder of Adrian Mellon by it, instigated in part by this very, very violent homophobic reaction to this, this young homosexual man who, with, with this boyfriend, uh, Tom Haggerty, at, what was it, the, what they call it, the, Dairy Canal Days or something. It's like a it's like a festival, I, you know, that these small type of towns have that try to connect people to the past, celebrate that past, and and celebrate the future prosperity of the town, and just allow people to get out and and have a good time. It's it's important that it manifests this in this next cycle at a time when dairy is celebrating itself because of course it is itself. It there again, there's no disconnection between these two things. They are the same thing. If anything, it's our characters who are the ones dwelling and haunting the town. You can't separate it from Derry, which is, again, why I think it's odd that the town survives at all in kind of the King Metaverse. It should have been completely destroyed, I would, I would guess, which he has done before. He's been willing to do that with, like, Jerusalem's Lot, with, in Cary, uh, you know, in Las Vegas is annihilated in the stand, so he's perfectly capable of destroying a town, and he had the means to do it with the flood, but for some whatever reason, he wanted to return to this town. And as good as those later dairy novels are, not as good as this one, obviously, that they have their value, I'm not sure this is the right setting for them. I, I think it's better it's destroyed because he put so much effort into the unity of these two things. But the point of all this is, of course, the Dairy Canal Days is celebrating Dairy's history. And what better time for Dairy's history to reawaken um, than that. And so the story is, this is another, like I said, almost every chapter has some kind of flashback. And here it's the interrogation room with the three murder, suspe three murder suspects and Tom Haggerty, the boyfriend being questioned by the police who are themselves homophobic, horrible, violent, vicious people, um, perfectly willing to say horrible things to people in their power, 
they're not good people. And, and I know there's been a criticism of this novel in that the adults are always seen as is universally bad. Um, and I don't know if it's like how to interpret that fully. I'm fine with it because it almost works as a survivorship bias. Only the really toxic people can endure and survive in this town in some way, or the town corrupts the people who live there long enough. Um, but yeah, it, it's true. Adults are horrible in this book. And there are a few decent ones here and there, like the librarian or whatever. Um, and of course, Mike Hanlon's able to, um, you know, he's a good force. He's kind of special. There's a certain magic about him as well as the rest of the Losers Club. So I don't, I, I still think there's something to this idea that adults in dairy there's something wrong with them if you survive that long uh adrian mellon who is a newcomer to the town right he doesn't know the history his boyfriend don haggerty does and warns him at one point so we actually get a couple layers of, of history here we get like the event the murder talked about via the interrogation room and we also get the narrator's flashbacks to everything from the gay bar that emerged in Derry, and that's a wonderfully kind of humorous story about how this man tries to start a bar in Derry, and he doesn't, it's not successful until it becomes a gay bar, and he doesn't know it's a gay bar. He's the last person to learn it's a gay bar. It's a nice little story, perhaps drawn from, from life in a way. Um, and we've got Adrian's history of why he wanted to stay in Derry. Wonderful stuff that I guess I don't have time to get into the way this podcast is is unfolding right now we're already at about 30 minutes but um it's one of the better chapters i think in the book in the way it nests these these narrations in a very lovecraftian style lovecraft it's actually be done better than i think lovecraft ever did and with the nested narrations and the the history and the present coexisting at the same time right i guess that's if you think of a lovecraft example of that you got the call of cthulhu doing it and i think even more so the case of charles Dexter ward which Actually, if anything, this is that's the story to contrast this novel to in a certain way, in, in in ways I may get into later. I should talk about what, on the surface, seemed to offend these bullies uh, that instigated this murder of Adrian Mellon, and that's that Adrian Mellon had that hat that had I, I Heart Dairy. Famously, uh, that's on all the balloons that it exposes after the murder of Adrian Mellon, kind of opening up. There's a big event, right, starting off each of these cycles and ending the cycles. And here it's these balloons, I Heart Dairy. Of course, for it does love dairy. <laughs> he is dairy. Um, Adrian Mellon, who doesn't understand dairy, has it on. And Don Haggerty tries to warn him that you shouldn't heart dairy. And the, the toxic men, who also are of dairy by this point in their lives, at least two of them, the third is maybe just you know, presented as kind of a young tag-along. Uh, they are of dairy, so they love dairy, and they're offended that this gay person has it. There's a lot of use of homophobia, institutional, community-wide homophobia, used as a way of exposing uh, dairy as a horrendous, evil place. Right, like the graffiti, like the really violent graffiti. There's a wonderful scene where Don Haggerty takes Adrian to like the kissing bridge, it's called, to show him like the anti gay graffiti. And it's just vicious, it's not like gay jokes or um, that you might see in a 
bar bathroom or something. It's like vicious, vicious stuff like, you know, kill all homos, that kind of stuff. It's like very, very vicious stuff. And he says, like, this is why you don't understand this town. Um, but eventually through these nested narrations, we not only get the history of Adrian Mellon, we get the history of, of a community in Derry, this gay community in Derry. And there's a lot of effort that King puts into describing how this community protects itself and, uh, you know, keeps quiet in Derry because it knows how toxic the community is and how deep the homophobia there runs. We also get the, the story of the murder told from different points of view um, and the events they agree on. And it's done wonderfully where you have two different witnesses, both talking about the guy in the clown suit, Dom, Tom, Don Haggerty and this other one of the uh, bad guys, one of the murderers. I don't, well, they, they actually didn't murder him, right? He was alive when he thrown off the bridge. It was it that completed the murder. But obviously they're instigating that event. They're part of the ritual that begins this cycle. Um, and then we get, yeah, so I'm saying we get the story of this murder where they beat him up, throw him over the bridge, and then witness him being eaten, or like consumed partially by this man in a clown suit. And it's done because we get two different witnesses talking about it. The police then have to have their conversation about like this. There's something up with this, right? That's we got two different independent witnesses describing the same thing. And then the DA saying, well, you better shut up about it because we want to put these people away for life. This viciousness. It's not really you don't get the you don't get the sense they really care about Adrian Mellon. You get the sense what they really care about is simply. Um, um, putting away these boys for life, right? You know, there's like a viciousness from their perspective, even though they're, they're trying to put away these bad guys. They're not doing it because they really care about the victim. Um, so is that enough about chapter two? Yeah, we're told at the end that they're not even in jail because they're appealing the sentence. I don't know how that works. I think if you get a conviction and you appeal it, I don't know if you can like be free. So a murder conviction. Maybe King got the law wrong. Maybe that's what it is in Maine at the time. I, I don't know if he did that research. The idea that two people convicted of murder and another with like manslaughter. Maybe that guy you could imagine would be on like probation or something, but the two convicted of, of murder, first degree murder, appealing their sentence, they wouldn't be all on the streets, right? Um, but that's, it actually says here, at the time of this writing, all three sentences are under appeal. Garten and Dubay. Uh, maybe seen on any given day, girl watching or playing Penny Pitch in Bassey Park, not far from Mellon's torn body, where, where Mellon's torn body was found floating against one of the pilings of the Main Street Bridge. Uh, end quote. But what's really, I think, key about this whole chapter and why I love this chapter so much is not only the way history is used and weaving into the story, but also how it really makes clear that there is just something wrong with this town. There's something toxic. We're not talking about a haunted house. You know, it's like, you know how he does in Salem's Lot. He talks about how the Marston house is an evil house. It's not a haunted house. It's an evil house. Well, Derry's not a haunted town, even though Mike Hanlon uses that term to talk about it. It's an evil town because, again, it is one-on-one -on -one with this, this entity. 
So next we'll get to chapter three, which I'm not going to finish in this podcast because I'm doing this 100 pages at a time. Uh, chapter three, and I remember when I first read read this as a kid, it's like, and I, I want to admit, when I read this as a kid, I didn't have the level of understanding of this book that I have now. I, I think I, I do much, have a much deeper understanding of it at this point, having read it a few times um, and coming at it with more adult eyes, which of course is part of the point, I think, of, of King here. I think he realizes an adult and a child would read this book differently. But anyways, this chapter was like 100 pages. And it's like at that point in my life, I never heard of a 100 page chapter. Right. It was just like unheard of. Like books are 100 pages. A chapter can't be 100 pages, but it is. It is. It's got six parts. It's like six mini chapters in which we meet our characters, our our main characters. And so let's get right into it. Our first is Stanley Uris. He's, of course, the one who, after getting the phone call from Mike Hanlon, telling him, you got to come back. It has come back. We got to deal with this. We made a promise. Who kills himself immediately rather than face that. Um, rather than re, re-embolden himself for that confrontation. Rather than face, even more so, I don't want to say it's just about a lack of courage. It's like a lack of ability to come to terms with his own past. Um, now it's suggested here, I mean, to some degree, the characters have certain memories of the past, but by and large, all six of these people, except Mike, who stays behind, have forgotten their past. They've forgotten their time in Derry. There's a shocking part in the sixth mini chapter here where Bill Denbro even says like he, he essentially for all intents and purposes, forgot his son was, or his brother was murdered. He remembered like, it's like, it's like. That thing that's in your con, like it's in your mind. You know it as a truth, but it's not a, something you live with. It's not an experiential truth, you know. But it seems that Stanley Uris seems to remember a bit more and started remembering things earlier. There's also evidence that that something was beginning to awaken them. Like at the same time that, for instance, many of these people talk about reading Bill Denbro's books around the time that the Adrian Mellon murder takes place, like just recently remembering Bill Denver and reading his books. It's like, that's the turtle, right? Maybe saying, you got to start remembering, you got to wake up because that's what's going to save you. Um, but he seems to remember more because he, it's like deeper in the past, he, there's little hints where he remembers things. Like he says, the turtle couldn't save us. Or, you know, he seems, when they're not having able to have kids, he sort of says, well, I'm the reason. It's not you. It's not fertility. I'm the reason we can't have kids. Now, let's talk about this. Let's let's talk about the, the what these people have in common. Because this is something that like Mike Hanlon brings up later in the novel, but never fully explains why it's significant. And he, King really leaves it to us to maybe piece it together. Um, I think that's good at, that he does that. But it's, it is something you have to kind of work your way through as you read it. And it's something that's completely kind of ignored in the movie adaptations, unfortunately, because I think it gets to the heart of the book. One is they're all successful. So on to what do we count the success? Um, one explanation that these six characters are all financially and socially successful. One explanation is, well, somehow that what they did, this is kind of Ben Hanscom's answers, like what we did like set us up for later success in life. That meeting that cur- meeting that challenge when we're young, when we're young, geared us for challenges in adulthood. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's quite the answer. Um, 
you know, because in that same chapter, Ben Hanscom says something like, it's like, you know, you, you, you have to kind of pay your debts. It's, you can't escape your, he's kind of talking about, you can't escape your past. You can't suppress it very long. The question is, why are they successful? And it seems to me the reason is, and, and if you disagree with me, tell me. I'd, I'd love to hear why you, you know, other opinion, opinions about this. But the reason they're successful is because it does not want them to be. It does not want them to return. It wants to give them a reason to live far from dairy. They all are successful outside of dairy. None of them can find success in dairy. They all find success outside of dairy. And they're taken far, far away from dairy. You know, either their career path or geographically in some cases far. Bill Denbro, in some ways the leader of the group, right? You know, basically the leader of the group is sent the farthest away. He's in London to do a movie. Um, Eddie, uh, not Eddie, uh, Rich, who's kind of sec the second, the the one who picks up in the final confrontation, who picks up for um, when Bill falters and becomes like the true one that kind of achieves the killing blow in some ways, mental killing blow against it. He's in L.A right um ben hanscom is in nebraska and even when he's like working in new york city or somewhere he returns to nebraska he turns somewhere very geographically far from maine uh stanley uris is in atlanta and a point is made about why the hell do you want to go to atlanta why not stay in new york city you can be a very successful jewish accountant in new york city what better place to be than that or was it boston or someplace like that but he's like no we're going to atlanta all right, which seems an odd place for a person like Stanley Uris to start a practice. The closest was Eddie Kasprak, but uh, in New York City. But even that is, at least in terms of geography, very different from Derry. Um, Beverly is in Chicago, right? Is that all of them? I, th I think that gets all of them. Um, so they're all geographically far away, and they're all successful. So it seems to me it want help make them successful. Not by necessarily them getting their courage worked up by what they did, but literally it does not want them to come back because it knows they're a threat to his return and his survival because he was almost killed by them, right, in, in 58. So I guess it's actually two things. Geographical distance from Maine, from Derry, and success. And I think I tried to explain my take on that. The second is none of them have kids. And it's brought up in the first one most explicitly. They're all, you know, some of these are married. Um, what, five of them are married? Only uh, Rich isn't married. Um, right? Well, Mike. Mike's not married either. So five of them are married. None of them have kids. But it's the Stanley story, which again is another where we get the nested history. We get his experiences we actually start with Patricia Yurst after the suicide, and then we get the history of that night, the suicide, the call, and we then we get the history of their relationship. And so what's the real theme of that relationship? Yeah, it's partially becoming a successful accountant, um, moving to Atlanta, you know, becoming parts of the community, becoming wealthy, um, and all that. But it's mostly about child, like not having children, because they're explicitly talked about as having wanting to have children. Right. They go to doctors, they go to fertility doctors, they dwell on this. The parents push them to have kids. So having children is central to their thinking. 
as a couple. And the question is, why no children, right? Why aren't they allowed to have children? Again, this is something that Mike Hanlon later on brings up when they meet and get together for the first time. And he says, none of us have children. And they actually debate whether that's true. And I think Rich at one point says he thought he got someone pregnant, but there never was a child in that relationship. Um, why? Well, again, I think this is its doing. It's not the turtle's doing. Maybe the success is something to do with the turtle. I don't know. I don't think so. I think both of these, all these facts have to do with it. Um, and I think directly so. It may be slumbering, but it's still a force. It's still able to control certain things. And why no kids? Well, they does not want, he does not want them to think about their childhood. Right? Because that's the key. That's the weapon. That's how they win, is by remembering their childhood, remembering their past. And how many of us actually remember our past? I, when I read this book, I think a lot about this. What do I remember from when I was 11 or 12? And I have fragments, but without any supernatural event disrupting my memory, if someone were to ask me to go back to a particular summer of, my, of when I was like in sixth and seventh grade, I don't think I could say that much more than these people say about it. Right? Of course, nothing traumatic. There's no murder spree that I remember. But, you know, I have impressions. I remember people's names. I remember certain places. Actually, I have a pretty good memory of places. That's where their memory is strongest, is in place. Actually, they remember the canals, and they remember the kissing bridge, and the standpipe. But they don't remember the events very well, and I, that seems true to life to me. But um, having children, when you see them grow up, that brings back parts of your own past. It helps you remember when you were children, right? When you're in a, you're in a playground with your kid, you remember your own time in the playground. You remember what you liked as kids. So I think them not having kids was a way to keep them in adulthood. And it makes it that much more difficult for them to face the final confrontation in, in 1985. Now, obviously, I've said that, that Stanley Uris seems to have memory of this. Like, he mentions earlier in the relationship, like, I'm the reason you can't have kids. And he seems to know something about his past. Um, but also, we have that, something that comes up with several of these characters. It's like reading Bill Denbro's book. Of course, Bill Denbro becomes a, basically a Stephen King, right? A, a, a pulp kind of horror writer who, may, who, who was involved in making films and all that. Very close relationship not physically I and mean, bill denbro's bald and a little chubby i guess king was a little fatter back in the 80s right when he was drinking more but it's but he at one point recently he buys this bill denbro book which i think it's about the time that it awakens right they're drawn to their childhood on some subconscious level and again it's like i think even like Beverly, like they forget their friendships because I think one of the characters, maybe it's Bill Denbro when he's talking to his wife, because uh, he has the most like conscious conversation about what's going on of the six, where he says like something about Ben Hanscom and the wife's like, you mean the architect? And he's like, maybe, right? I, I don't know if, if I saw a famous architect with the name of a childhood friend, I might be able to put two and two together. It hasn't happened, but it's a bit striking that even when faced with the name, he can't quite put it together. Um, but what key happens is he starts reading Bill's 
book and it's on the nightstand or whatever. And of course, Patricia Uris doesn't really like it. So why is it here? Um, well, why was he drawn to buy that book or check it out from the library? And it seems maybe that's the turtle. Maybe that is uh, something we can account for the turtle. But I think not all of them, but most of them remember Bill of any more than anyone else. So that's the important part in this chapter. But the, the suicide itself is just great writing. It's the, you know, he locks the door to the bathroom, kills himself, and there's that drip, drip of the blood, which Patricia hears from outside the door is the drip, drip of water. She can't understand why he would lock the door. It's like there's kids in the house. Um, you know, she even says something like, that's what he'll do when he's taking a shit, but not when he's taking a bath. Um, he took the bath too early. There's something wrong, and she realized with the door locked that there's something wrong, and she's hearing the drip, 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 and she calls 911 and stops, and then is suddenly back on the first floor. She doesn't even know how she got there. She, like, blacked out for a bit, calls again, or I think it's the neighbor ends up calling 911 eventually, but she finally uses the key to open the door, and she sees uh, her husband killed himself out of nowhere, right? There's no signs. Just that phone call and that... And the description of the phone call, too, is wonderful because we just get it from Patricia Uris's point of view. Where she, um, and I don't, we don't get any of the calls direct. We don't get the, the, the actual conversation of the call in any of the six stories. The call either happens off screen or from a different character's point of view. But we just see his face. I mean, King describes how Stan's face changes at that instant when, the, when he hears the name Derry or he hears the name Mike Hanlon. But... Um, now the, the writing the it with blood, writing it with blood, it's a bit overdone. I think it's not really necessary, but it, it, it's kind of shocking on the, in the book to actually write it out like it looks like blood, uh, in the, in the text of the book. If you've never read it, um, what was written on the wall, I think that's a little bit much, I guess, but it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's a little bit, it's a pulpy moment in what an, an otherwise I think is a quite sophisticated work of literature. But that's fine too, because we're always being drawn back to the pulps because that's where our characters as children dwell. They're in the fifties. They're watching these kind of pulpy horror films. And I was a teenage Frankenstein and all the stuff King talks about in Dance Macabre. If you, if you ever read that book, it's great. Um, Next, we have uh, Richie Tozer takes a powder, um, and we find out Richie Tozer has become a, a like a DJ comic and, and special sound voices, fairly famous, not super famous, but successful, certainly on his way up, right? You get the sense that in a few years, he's going to move his way up in the entertainment business and maybe be like a Johnny Carson type character, right? Having his own show or something. But he's well known in the LA market as a DJ and, and a comedian who specializes in doing these voices. And again, we don't get the call itself. We just get the aftermath of the call. And he, he called, he immediately says, I'm going to go. Right. And he makes the plans. He uses secretary to help make plans to make a trip to dairy immediately. And then a lot of this is a, a little bit overdrawn talk with his boss where there's a bit of, there's a, there's like quite a bit of that in this chapter. Actually, I, I, I don't mind it, but some of these conversations, it's something that King does. Like he writes conversations in ways like I've never had a conversation like that. He's so good at characters and his characters do seem drawn from life and they're not 
they're believable and they're we're having intimate relationship with them but sometimes their conversations are overly sometimes overly jokey or overly confrontational you know i don't believe a fairly famous dj who says i have an emergency i have to go home for a few days or a week would would react the way his boss does or his partner does or as he kind of blanches on him but whatever it kind of builds some drama into these um relationships i guess the one with eddie is a little bit more believable because that's a wife who is kind of freaking out and they have a very codependent relationship um which is something that eddie has to break out of but richie just has to get away from work for a week and i think king wants to build in some drama in it we have a suicide the rest are married so those there's like a built-in drama with someone just getting a phone call and leaving uh being unable to explain why to the spouse but anyways we it's here and it's it's fine but i think it's the least convincing of of these dramas that are built into the this decision to up and leave um but there's there's a there's not much to say there's a lot of of rich remembering like being bullied and that's what he remembers first is being bullied and picked on by the bully uh, by you know the bullies who are also part of dairy it's pretty clear that the the you know there's I've, i've read criticisms of king like his bully characters are like over the top and i think that's the case in some of his stories but here it's fine because whatever natural bullying people have it's going to be upped because every every dairy itself is a manifestation of it and it's going to be worsened by its presence so that's that's fine that works um but he remembers that a lot and he starts to remember a little bit about certain people he has a fairly good memory of the past it comes back pretty quick for him um there's a line i want to talk about though where he's packing his clothes and the narrator just writes he didn't know till later that or it would not occur to him until later that he had taken nothing but kids clothes now what does this mean he i don't think he's taking his kids clothes that doesn't make much sense like little tiny shorts and tiny shirts i think it means he's taking clothes that are fit for a child to wear which of course adults often own right we have our shorts and our t-shirts and our, our jokey shirts with slogans and stuff but it's a right, nice little moment where we're we're shown how richie's already reverting back to his childhood maybe it's easier for him because he's a comic right it's it's easy for it's easier for bill denbro he's because he's a writer um it's harder for people like stan and beverly to fully come to terms with their youth partially maybe because it's so traumatic or because like in stan's case it's because he's so hyper rational Bev's because her childhood is so uh, traumatic. It has an Eddie too. They have these traumatic relationships with their parents. Um, Ben's doing what kind of he always wanted to do since he was a kid, be an architect and a creator. So maybe he, it comes, I mean, I don't know. It's all, I don't want to rank these characters into who has the best memory initially, but it does seem that those whose life experiences or trauma of their youth are worse do seem to have a harder time coming to terms with this or remembering it 
you know, or in Stan's case, maybe he sort of remembered a bit of it all along and he never could really, it never really sat right with him. So that's why he just checked out rather than go back to Derry. So I really like uh, part three of this chapter. Ben Hanscom takes a drink, which is just, this whole scene is told from the point of view of the bartender at this Nebraska bar in Hemingford Home, which of course is an important setting in the stand. Um, and again, we see Ben Hanscom being as geographically far from Derry as possible. It's actually difficult. He's got the most trouble getting back. I think ben, Bill has an easier time getting back to Derry from England. Ben, you know, has to take like a private jet or something to another airport. So he has to, he has like the hardest time to get back. He's really physically separated himself. And we're told he like goes back there when he's not working on buildings because he likes it. But maybe there's another reason why he, he wants to be there. But he goes to this bar every weekend or, you know, once a week or, you know, while he's there, maybe a couple times a week, he goes there and has a few beers. One night he'll have a lot of beers, but he's good friends with the bartender, right? And he goes in this, so he just shows up one day and asks for like a whole bottle of, of wild turkey whiskey. And he says, like, I, I'm going to drink this. And he says, I know a trick. And it's like, it has to involve with like snorting lemons to kind of, I think, create adrenaline in your body to help metabolize the alcohol. I don't, don't try this at home, obviously. I think it's just invented. But it's a fun little scene where he drinks this whole bottle of whiskey then leaves the bar after giving like a silver dollar to to um, the bartender. And this is our first kind of um, introduction to the silver dollars, which he actually remembers giving one to his friend. So he seems to remember a little bit about at least his aspect, his part of the story, which is the silver dollars and melting it down into the, into the slugs, um, which is going to be an important scene more towards the end of the novel. Um, and Ricky Lee, the bartender, is like kind of freaked out by this whole scene because it's just the look on Ben's face is one of terror and loss and trauma. And Ricky Lee is just a bartender, so he doesn't really know what to do with about that and he just lets him go. And it's a wonderful scene. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Um, the back and forth between Ricky Lee and Ben. Um, we also hear, just as all these chapters get the history of Ben as an architect, uh, and uh, an emerging famous architect. Again, successful, but still successful at the early end of the career, right? These people are in their mid-30s, so they're not quite the, you know, you can imagine their 40s on this career path. It all would have been, like, world famous, but they're still on their way up. They're f famous within their fields or famous within their region, you know, but like where King was in the early 80s, right? Beginning to be famous, well known, but not yet the the you know the breakout you know super success it would be later in life, and that's certainly the case of of, of Ben Hanscom. Uh, next, we get Eddie Kasprak, and I guess that's the last chapter I'll talk about because we're going to hit our our limit of a hundred pages. Um, this one, uh, well, what's the deal with you? Okay, so. This is some, he's one who really takes with him something from his childhood. And, and to a degree, they all do. Maybe Stan takes his memories. Ben takes his creativity and his interest in construction. Bill takes his, uh, his imagination. Georgie at one point thinks Bill's very good at scene. That's why he could be a good writer. 
So even Georgie knew he could be a good writer someday, or at least he sensed it. Bev takes her her abusive relationships, right? Her all her boyfriends were abusive towards her, as her father was. Um, Eddie takes his illness. So in contrast to so many of them, I, as I said, moving away from their past, all of them also carry something with them from their past um, to a certain degree. And for Eddie, it's his hypochondria, which of course he gets from his mom, his, who is a very, very toxic woman in his life. Um, and we got that wonderful like two-page scene of just the description of Eddie Kasprak's medicine cabinet. It's really nice. But most of this scene is... His wife, who is described as like his mother, as as a needy, codependent, overweight woman. At one point, it's explicitly said that Eddie married his mother. Um, so we're going to say more about his relationship. And actually, Eddie is one of the strongest people in among the Losers Club, and he has some of the best moments. And I think he hasn't been presented slightly presented slightly better in the newer version, but certainly in the first, the old old. TV miniseries. He was presented, I think, really poorly. But, um, but despite overcoming his mom in his youth, in a very, very wonderful chapter, he ends up marrying him. I wonder if that was something where if King didn't go back and rewrite these chapters. I, I think he maybe should have, because that is such a great moment for Eddie's when he overpowers his mother. Not physically, but in a, in a psychic duel. And of course, the psychic duel being crucial in the final confrontation with it, both times. But that it doesn't seem right that he would go back and marry his mother, right? Unless it's about this back, this struggle in the backdrop between it and the turtle, right? It trying to get them to forget the past and embrace a new life as adults and forget dairy and the turtle trying to get them to remember. Maybe that's maybe that's why he married his mother. Someone like his mother. But a lot of this chapter is this screaming match between, well, she, she, the wife is screaming mostly, and, and Eddie is basically trying to defend why he has to go. And he also tries to explain a little bit to her about why he has to go, talking a little bit about his past. He's also aware of being, like, um, abused um, by bullies. So that's part of his memory. Um, he remembers like how his me his medicine is a placebo. He seems to be aware of this, that a lot of his illnesses are being faked by his mom, but he continues to take them, right? Um, and again, that's something I think we've got to think about. And I haven't fully concluded about why King insists on him carrying this into his adulthood, even though he seems to know on a conscious level that He's not actually ill. He doesn't have asthma, but he continues to use the, as the, the, the aspirator, respirator. I guess aspirator, right? It's the right term. Um, so I guess that's it. Yeah, I think that's the first 100 pages or so. So this is a good pace. I think um, it'll probably take me this long to talk about the other chapters. Maybe a little bit less. Maybe the future episodes won't be quite this long. But I am going to do like 10 or 11 episodes where I'm going to break down this novel bit by bit. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this and I hope you stick with me as I dig deeper into this book that I love. And I hope many of you also at least appreciate, if not also love. 
So let me know what you think about anything I said, uh, and I'm open to being wrong about a lot of what I've said here, a lot of my interpretations or thoughts. I, I'd love to have a back and forth with people who have read this book as well about what how you understand some of these aspects. Um, I do think this is a fairly well-planned-out novel. I think there's maybe moments where you think, oh, maybe this wasn't all the way thought through, but certainly a lot of what's in this first 100 pages is has payoffs later on, um, and sometimes very subtly. But it's, it's really, really well done. Um, and as I said, every chapter has different timelines in it. Um, it. You know, even though at the end we're flipping back every page almost, every single chapter almost, I, I, I can't think of any exceptions. If I come across them, I'll, I'll apologize. I'll say I was wrong. But I think pretty much think every chapter has some kind of temporal shifting where you have stories nested in stories. So anyways, that's, uh, that's going to be it for now. Um, hopefully it's clear to you why I like this book and, and why I want to do a series on it. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to be doing a whole King series, 100 pages of time that would take way too long. And I have other things I want to begin to work on, like uh, uh, finish the Civil War series and do after that do a Mark Twain series. But maybe I'll, I'll pick some other King novels to do because I, I do enjoy them very much. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next Going time. Going down to Lonesome Town Where the broken hearts stay Going down to Lonesome Town To cry my troubles away in the town